Welcome to ASRS's Journal of Vitreoretinal Diseases Authors Forum. I'm your host, Dr. Timothy Murray, Editor-in-Chief of JVRD. On each episode of the JVRD Authors Forum, I will interview innovative retinal researchers on their studies featured only in JVRD and how these studies will impact our patients' care in our clinics. Tune in to hear directly from investigators about the clinical implications of the newest and highest quality research in the field of retina. It's my pleasure to speak with Dr. Daniel Miller from the Cincinnati Eye Institute to discuss his paper with his colleagues on modified split thickness corneal patch graft for conjunctival erosions in patients with the port delivery system implant and we will discuss surgical techniques and long-term outcomes. Welcome, Dan. Thank you, Tim. It's a pleasure to be here with you. So we're interested in your approach to the manuscript at first. So how did you identify the problem and select how you were going to look at your patient population? Yeah, thanks, Tim. That, that's a great question. The patients that are reflected in this paper are patients that were in the initial um, ladder clinical trials. So they're some of the very first patients in the United States that underwent the RPDS implant, now that we identify as the Suspimo implant. So it was very early on in our experience with Suspimo, and, and there were a number of kind of early on surgical challenges that were identified in those co cohort of patients, as you well know. One issue at that time was postoperative vitreous hemorrhages because we weren't cauterizing the choroid as we were inserting the implant. And then later on, after implantation, we were identifying patients who were having conjunctival erosions or conjunctival retraction. And that really was elevated to a critical um, you know, level when it was identified that that posed a risk of endophthalmitis. So I'm fascinated because most of our trials are not surgically based um, and, and they're much more controllable, but it amazed me how quickly within ladder the shift to a different surgical approach to minimize first the vitreous hemorrhage. I, I found that striking. That was really um, something that I think spoke well to an understanding of the procedure and a willing to modify that. Um, so that we don't even really talk about since that issue is, is much less common, but I think this concern with potentials for increasing risk of endophthalmitis regarding either erosion or retraction. Um, and it didn't surprise me that those were, um, early in the surgical procedures. So can you tell me how you, how you looked at that? How did you grade that? What was your level of concern? How did you identify the at-risk patient? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think um, as I look back historically, initially there wasn't a lot of focus on necessarily how we maintained conjunctiva and tenons. We had directions in the trial to close conjunctiva, do a good closure, bring it up to the limbus, there really were not directions to preserve Tenon's capsule initially. And we also didn't have strict criteria in terms of looking for very subtle clues for retraction or, or erosion. And sometimes the signs can be very subtle. 
Um, the two cases that are represented in this series in the paper represent very obvious exa examples of conjunctival erosion that possibly earlier on, I, I might've missed very, very subtle signs of erosion starting, but we really weren't looking at a, at a very critical level at the conjunctiva at that point. And then you well know um, in, in Archway, as we had an Archway to phase three, there was a lot of training around handling conjunctiva and tenons, meticulous undermining of tenons to preserve every little bit of it, making sure we pull tenons over the implant and if necessary, do a two layer closure, but for sure incorporate tenons into your closure and anchoring it as anteriorly as possible and not under tension to reduce the risk of, uh, you know, these complications. And I, I, you know, and, and I do think those mitigation strategies have reduced the risk, but as you and I well know, and our colleagues well know, it's, go it's going to happen. And when you look at the data in, in Archway, 25 to 2.4% risk of roughly conjunctival retraction or erosion separately. So possibly a greater than 4% risk of one of those things occurring. And, you know, for our glaucoma colleagues that were routinely putting in, you know, valves, that was really not uncommon. And they had very different approaches of how to manage, you know, coverage of the tube to eliminate that erosion or exposure. Um, we used to do a lot more with the conjunctiva when we were doing buckling surgery, but many of our, our younger colleagues really have little experience managing um, the conj other than to push their uh, trocard cannula through it. So it, it really was a, a retraining event in some ways for, for the surgeons involved. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Tim. And, and um, what's interesting to me is the very first patient in this series had a conjunctival erosion. My initial plan was to just do a, a conjunctival flap and tenons flap to get it covered. I dissected meticulously and freed everything up, had more than enough mobile tissue to adequately cover it. And there was nothing under tension. And uh, this is the first one that I had managed. So I thought, gosh, this should be fine. Well, she eroded again. And to the point that you're making about our glau glaucoma colleagues, I have some wonderful glaucoma colleagues in Cincinnati. And, and I went to them and I said, hey, here's, here's what has happened what do you recommend? And they really walked me through their surgical technique, their rationale of how they cover and, and some of the subtle, subtle things they do to, to address those. And I applied that to the second attempt with this patient when it, it worked. And that, and that patient, she's uh, been stable for six years. She's had 11 refills um, over that span of time with no other you know, issues. And Dan, you know, one of the things that, that is concerning, as you've already noted, is that the major discussion point around the port delivery system before some of the, the issues with the valve control was endophthalmitis. And, and I think you and I both feel that that endophthalmitis is significantly enhanced in its risk exposure if there is issues over the implant itself with exposure um, or detraction. So are, is the hope that with better management early that we'll ultimately lower the potential risk for endophthalmitis? Yeah, I, I think that's the hope. I, I think we have to follow these patients differently than other patients that we follow because we're, we're 
as retina surgeons, we're not used to looking this closely at the conjunctiva. And I, I recently inherited a study patient with endophthalmitis and um, subsequently found a very, very small microerosion that, that led to it. Uh, so I think we have to monitor these patients very closely and look at their, their conjunctival surface. And if there's a deficit in the conjunctival surface, they really should have, in my opinion, prompt revision to, to reduce the risk of endophthalmitis. I think what's a very interesting secondary question is, should the surgical technique be modified further? Should every patient have a clear corneal graft over top of the implant? to take the risk of conjunctival uh, retraction or erosion from 4% to something less than 1%. And when you look in the literature around glaucoma surgery, about 5% risk of erosion, but the, the, you know, the tubes are much, much bigger and there's a much larger surface area involved. This is smaller, so my, my you know, the implant's smaller, so my, my gut tells me that we would be able to lower that risk lower with, uh, with that type of strategy. I think that makes sense because, you know, at least with that type of a graft approach, if if the tightness of the conge or the tenons over, if there is some retraction or erosion, you still have tissue coverage over the implant. But there was also some discussion that that may make it more difficult to identify and refill. So what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So at the time, um, you know, this was um, more than five years ago at this point very little was known about managing these complications. These were really the first set of patients. And what we didn't know at the time that I did the first case was for, would there be an issue refilling the implant through the clear corneal graft and then through the septum? Uh, Genentech's team was wonderful. They, they took a sample of the corneal uh, patch graft that I was using. They tested it in the lab and they saw that it could be refilled through the split thickness graft into the septum and that it would work adequately. Um, but I decided to, to carve a buttonhole in the center of the split thickness graft to just reduce the risk because I knew from doing these, the refill was hard enough enough uh, as it is. Um, sometimes visualization of the uh, septum is hard. I use retroillumination now to really address that, but back then I didn't didn't realize that was a strategy I could use to, to mitigate that that challenge and really just had some concern about in real time in a real patient, would it be a risk? So I took the split thickness graft, I just centered it on the eye over the septum, got a ballpark idea of the size of the septum, took a marking pen and just freehand marked the circle in the center, took the split thickness corneal graft uh, over to the you know, tray, the ta operating table on the side cut out the buttonhole freehand. And then as I sutured the, the split thickness corneal graft over the implant, just made sure that that center aperture was in a good spot and directly over the septum. And that worked very well. They, the two patients reported in this paper had that technique and um, had in one instance, 11 refills and the other patient, 12 refills and it, it worked just fine. Well, I really appreciate your sharing that experience with us through the journal, but also talking to me tonight, because clearly, you know, this is a unique approach to a chronic problem 
Um, and there have been concerns and, and you're addressing one of those concerns through, through this manuscript. So I think that's really important to realize that for surgical procedures, they're in evolution. I don't, I don't think you and I do much the same way we did it five years ago, let alone 10 years ago. So I really applaud you. It's hard to publish in the surgical space. And I think that this was um, an excellent benefit for our, our readership. So thank you, Dan Miller. Thank you, Tim. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you and, and greatly appreciate the journal accepting the manuscript. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to the JVRD Authors Forum. You can watch and listen to more episodes on the ASRS YouTube channel and on popular podcast directories, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Visit www.asrs.org forward slash JVRD forum on the ASRS website to learn more. See you soon.